This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience by a webinar on the 6th of May, 2020. The topic was understanding youth well-being during COVID-19. On the panel, we have Helen Dodd, Professor of Child Psychology at the University of Reading. Stephanie Healy, Diverse Learning Coordinator at Villa Maria Primary School and St. Patrick Primary School. Sophie Lee, Senior Clinical Research Manager at the Black Dog Institute. And chairing this session is Dr. Carol Mule. Welcome to Expert Insights tonight. Um, we're just looking at understanding youth well-being during COVID-19, um, and that's quite a broad topic tonight. Um, before we get started, just an acknowledgement to country, um, to pay our respects to elders both past and present and into the future, and to welcome any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people here today. Few things to keep in mind. Um, we've got quite a number of resources at the moment. Um, we have other podcasts going as well, including the Being Well podcast series, um, where Jen Orman interviews um, people who have had lived experience with mental health issues and illnesses. So please do check it out. And we also have a number of resources available on the Black Dog Institute um, in response to COVID-19 as well. So uh, we would invite you to use some of these resources and to visit us on our webpage, which Melissa Cybra will send out to you um, after our podcast tonight. So the first thing I'm going to do is uh, introduce you to our amazing panel members today. Um, evening for us, uh, afternoon for us, but actually early morning for one of our panel, expert panel, which is um, Professor Helen Dodd, um, who is a professor in... University of Reading um, and Stephanie Healy who's a diverse learning coordinator and Sophie Lee, uh, our very own Sophie Lee from the Black Dog Institute who's a senior clinical research manager. Now we've got a very brief bio up here um, and what I'd love to do is just actually get our panel members to introduce themselves a little bit more because um, it doesn't really fully capture uh, the range of expertise and the depth of their expertise. So I might start with Helen Dodd. Helen, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to join you all in Australia. I wish I was there too, not stuck in England, but there we are. Um, so I am a professor of child psychology, as Carol said. Uh, my background is in anxiety disorders in particular and thinking about early risk for anxiety disorders and understanding the development um, of anxiety disorders in children. Uh, more recently, I've been looking at the role of play um, in children's risk for mental health. I'm still focusing somewhat on anxiety disorders, but broadening that a little bit and thinking about um, the role of play, how we can use play um, to support children's development and also whether we can use different types of play to target some of those risk factors that uh, we know are involved in the, in the development of anxiety. We're going to touch on that later on in the podcast as well in relation to COVID-19. Um, the next person, um, we might get Steph to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, my name's Steph um, and I am a primary school teacher by trade, um, a parent of three as well, which I think is relevant in these times. Um, I have been teaching almost for 20 years and done like a lot of different roles within education, but at the moment I am um, overseeing diverse learning, so across two schools, and that um, has been actually a really sharp learning curve for me, which has been really great, um, but 
it allows me to work with students and teachers and um, therapists and professionals outside of education. And so, um, yeah, it's been really great kind of, you know, on a different learning path with, um, you know, different people. Thanks, Steph. And the last one is Sophie Lee. So Dr. Sophie Lee, can you give us a little bit of a brief background? Yeah. Um, Hi, everyone. And yeah, thank you, Carol, for having me. So um, my name is Sophie Lee. I'm a clinical psychologist and a senior clinical research manager at the Black Dog Institute. Um, in terms of my research background, I actually started off in, in neuroscience um, and uh, did quite a bit of my postdoctoral research in translational clinical neuroscience. Um, but since joining uh, the Black Dog Institute, um, my research interests, I guess, have evolved um, and my research is mostly into the mental health of young people. Um, I'm particularly interested in how young people engage um, in issues around mental health, um, particularly um, uh, their, their level of engagement in um, interventions to improve um, their mental health. Um, but also uh, factors that are associated with treatment responsiveness. So, um, so one of my areas of research prior to coming to the Black Dog was looking at um, sex differences in symptom pro profiles and, and in treatment response. Um, and I'm really interested to continue that research and to continue to work out ways that we can individualise treatment programs for young people um, so they get the most out of them. Fantastic. Welcome, Sophie. So I've got the first question, um, which is for Helen. Now, what are you most concerned about in terms of COVID-19 affecting children's mental health at the moment? And so for me, there's two uh, main issues here. One is um, related to children who previously had mental health problems um, or currently had mental health problems going into COVID-19. And so for those children, I think this period is likely to make things worse. Um, so if you think about a child who has depression, for example, then now being stuck at home and not able to put any of those things into practice that they might have been covering in treatment, or a child with separation anxiety who maybe was treated for that six months ago and discharged because they were doing really well and has now been with their parent at home every day for what are we on now? I don't even know, seven weeks, eight weeks, um, and is going to have to go back through that. So I think we might see quite a lot of the people we're already seeing in, in clinic needing more help and some of the people who we may have discharged over the last year or two coming back in requiring some, you know, some kind of top-up therapy to get them back through that transition. My other concern is for children who haven't previously been involved in services and haven't previously had you know, a significant mental health problem who are finding this time really difficult. Um, so children who are socially isolated from friends, um, perhaps children you know, who are only children or who are living in not great living conditions, um, who are going to be directly impacted in terms of their mental health by what's happening right now. So I think we're gonna see a return of some children who we've seen previously um, in terms of their mental health and some new children who unfortunately would have been doing okay if it hadn't been for this time being stuck at home. Yeah. And you know what's really interesting, Alan, like in Australia at the moment, they're tracking like GP visits and intakes um, at private clinics and we're seeing them go down. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about the first onset, those kids who, you know, this is the first time they've had it, 
they might not even be visiting, you know, their GPs mm. or actually go because they're thinking, well, I don't want to go into any health clinics at the moment. I don't want to do any face-to-face therapy. So, you know, is that happening? I don't know if you've got any insight into this in the UK as well. Are you concerned yeah, about referral rates going down? Yeah, it's it's the same here, not just in terms of mental health problems, but in terms of um, the broad range of health problems um, that people aren't seeking help because they don't want to go into a doctor's surgery um, because they're worried about the, the physical risks in terms of COVID-19. So if we think about all the referrals that would be coming in right now, um, you know, at some point they are probably still going to come. And there's also kids who right now are doing fine because what's difficult for them is going to school being around other people separating from their parents so right now they don't particularly need a lot of support because they're in heaven you know none of the things that that normally bother them and stress them out um are affecting them so that's really concerning in terms of how they manage that transition back to some kind of normal life you know absolutely it's almost as though it's hidden for now because it's such a comfortable environment and parents may not be aware that once school restarts these problems are going to bubble up. So some preparation is probably needed for people who are listening in, in terms of, you know, if you're working in allied health um, and the GPs, you know, you might be getting like really positive reports, but the minute the schools start to open, we're going to see these problems really start to emerge. Yeah. And certainly in our clinic where we see children with anxiety and depression, you know, we're already thinking about how are we going to manage to increase our service um, once schools reopen and things return to normal because we are anticipating that there's going to be more need than there's ever been. Yeah. Sophie, what might some of the challenges be for adolescents? Because we've talked about children and some of the difficulties that they might be experiencing. What What do you think for teenagers, what are some of the biggest mental health challenges uh, in the context of COVID-19? Um, well, really similar to what Helen has just said, one of uh, one of the things that we're considering, and um, we have anecdotal reports of this, is that um, young people with pre-existing um, depression and anxiety disorders are actually faring reasonably well at the moment, and that's because they feel like everyone else is in a similar boat to them. So everyone else, everyone is um, socially isolated. Um, uh, also, those things that provoke anxiety in them, like um, socialising, going out to the shops, um, being at school, are things that they don't have to do at the moment. So I think one of the challenges is not so much um, for those people right now, but as Helen was saying, um, how they're going to manage when, um, when when things start returning to normal and those challenges are sort of start to re-enter their lives. Um, I guess the way I view it is almost there's a bit of a, a setback in terms of their exposure um, to those to those feared situations. And so just knowing um, or anticipating that that's going to be a challenge for those those young people that have pre-existing um, mental health problems is, is something worth considering um, as, as a mental health professional and also um, for the young person themselves. I think another thing that um, that young people, that, that teenagers um, would be finding quite challenging at the moment as well is the level of isolation from their peers. Um, so whereas, uh, you know, younger children might be enjoying having their parents around and spending more time with them and, um, and that sort of thing, for teenagers that might not be so much the case because the interactions they really value are the interactions with their peers. 
Um, so catching up with friends at school, um, catching up with, with friends in their extracurricular activities. So those things, those things ceased um, and they ceased really, really suddenly and quickly and there was no real preparation um, or, or anticipation that that was going to happen. So I think for many teenagers, even like not just the teenagers with pre-existing mental health conditions, but all teenagers, um, just that social disconnectedness from their peers is probably something that's very challenging for them at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Steph, you're kind of like on the ground there in terms of keeping in touch with all the parents and the students who have been schooling from home. And, you know, what are you seeing as some of the major challenges that the students are experiencing at the moment during this unprecedented lockdown? Well, I've been fortunate enough to be able to um, speak to a number of parents as part of my role um, and I do kind of regular check-ins with, um, you know, kind of high-risk um, families um, and there's a lot of challenges that families are facing and there's a lot of things that repeatedly come up in these conversations. Um, the main thing is social interaction, the lack of social interaction, um, that it kind of becomes quite intense in families um, is something that has been evident because, you know, families are, you know, am I allowed to say they're having too much time together where, um, you know, the, the relationships and the conversations, they become really intense um, and I noticed that that happened early on. As time's gone on, that's kind of levelled out a little bit. But certainly to start with, um, that lack of seeing other people was a really big challenge for families. Um, another thing that's been really challenging has been um, keeping or their children engaged in learning. So... Um, you know, how parents are managing trying to keep their children, especially if they've got, um, you know, more than one child across um, schools and trying to keep them engaged and, um, and motivated to, to learn and be part of that school community and that school environment has been another challenge for families. Um, I think there's certainly pressure for families where they feel like they're overloaded with tasks and things during the day. Um, you know, it's kind of like, how am I going to get all of this done? And it feels really overwhelming. And um, it feels really overwhelming for parents. And I think that that has also influenced children and how they feel as well. So I think there's a really... Um, strong connect with, um, you know, anxiety in parents and anxieties um, rising in children during these, you know, times. Um, and I just think the exposure to, um, you know, the news and different things that they're exposed, that they have been exposed to has been really um, really anxiety building for many families that, you know, they haven't been able to control so much, um, you know, the amount of exposure that they would perhaps normally, um, you know, see. And they, they see these exponential graphs and these, um, you know, scenes from um, 
overseas and there's that anxiety that that could, you know, be coming to Australia and they they really um, find it hard to manage those feelings and it's actually impacted um, some kids' sleep patterns as well, which, um, you know, obviously has other flow-on effects for, you know, learning and how you kind of cope with siblings and and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, there are certainly lots of challenges that um, students are facing at the moment. Absolutely. And you touched about on something quite important, which is, you know, we've talked about how children may be feeling and how adolescents may be feeling, but, you know, parents are also stressed as well. And we know that that's got a very high correlation with children and adolescents becoming stressed. So turning back to Helen now, you know, do you have any advice for parents and, you know, because we've got allied health practitioners and GPs who are also listening in today um, and what kind of advice they would give to parents given that there's so much stress around having their children at home. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? I think all of us have also got our children at home. Um, I know I'm muting my microphone occasionally when mine make too much noise in the background. Um, it's, It's difficult. You know, there is absolutely no doubt that this is a really difficult time for parents. Um, parents who are not working parents who are working it's difficult in different ways for different people um so in terms of I think you know big source of the stress and some research that we've done here in the UK shows that the number one source of stress for parents right now is having to homeschool their children it's the thing that they are enjoying the least <laughs> about so, lockdown so, um, so supported by data what we're feeling is, is actually supported by, by data, data. yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> So we weren't surprised to see it, but it's quite nice to see it actually come out in the data. Um, and and so, and you know, I've got lots of friends who are parents as well. And my take on this is that children's mental health, parents' mental health, and the parent-child relationship need to come first. Um, so of course it's great if we can keep them engaged in their learning and, and you know, even see them making progress in terms of their education. Of course that's good, you know but not at the cost of anybody's mental health. Um, So we know um, also from evidence, from data, that mothers in particular, mothers' mental health, mothers' anxiety, is the strongest predictor of child anxiety over time. So if mums are feeling really anxious right now, they're going to also affect their child's mental health. Um, And getting some, you know, handwriting done is just not worth it. You know, we, you know, we know, and I'm sure most of the people who are listening know that fixing mental health and getting that back on track is challenging. Um, And I think it's fair to say that in, you know, most children have what, I'm not sure exactly what it is in Australia, but about 12 years of education. Um, If they've missed six weeks or so, you know, in the grand scheme of things, there's scope to catch that up. Um, And I don't know any parents who would sacrifice their own mental health or their child's mental health for the sake of that additional six weeks or so of education. So I think the message has to be exercise some self-compassion, realise that this is really difficult, get done what you can without sacrificing any of those things. And, you know, that parent-child relationship, you just, you don't want to break that. It's too valuable. 
you know, there's um, research from the London School of Economics, which shows that emotional well-being in childhood is the strongest predictor of life satisfaction in adults. And the least strongest predictor is intellectual ability. You know, and most of us want to parent children who grow up to be happy, well-rounded adults. You know, so I think it's having that perspective. And schools have a role to play here because the pressure that comes from schools causes parents to feel anxious, feel like they're not doing a good enough job. Um, so I think schools need to be really careful about making sure that they're supporting families without putting too much pressure and stress on families at a time when people are going through all sorts of other stressful um, situations as well. And I guess, you know, for all the people who are listening, who are working in the space, you know, GPs who might be experiencing parents coming in who are really stressed or psychologists who are encountering the really stressed parent, sounds like what you're advising is, you know, work with what we know, which is that maternal mental health and parent mental health is your best predictor. The impact of COVID-19 and this lockdown, we don't actually know because people keep using it as unprecedented. We don't actually have any mm. hard data on that. Um, but just being able to take care of the parent and the guardian's role and um, feeling well is going to help your child anyway. Yeah, and children need to be emotionally well to learn effectively. So if all we manage to do during this period is keep our children emotionally well, it means that when they return to school, they're ready to learn and ready to re-engage. Um, if we get so stressed about home educating them that the family dynamic is a mess and the children are not emotionally well, when they return to school, then they're going to really struggle. So it's just, I think, reassuring parents that this is hard. It's hard for everybody. And just look after yourself and do what you can. Steph, would you agree with that? I mean, we've got the next question, which is director and educator. You know, what level of independence are we ex uh, are we expecting children to have in terms of being able to complete activities, you know, for that child? And what kind of support, guidance and supervision is expected of the parent? Um, I don't think there's one answer for that. I think mm. it is really dependent on so many things. It's dependent on the ability of the child. It's dependent upon the... Um, learning environment, which is so varied at this point for everybody, you know, some learning environments are around dining tables for, you know, three kids and two adults. I've spoken to families who are working like that. Um, there are some that, you know, have their own quiet learning space. Um, there are there are some kids that um, have strained relationships when it comes to um accepting that um, the parent is kind of mixing their role a little bit in terms of teacher slash parent and it can be a little bit confusing. So I think, um, you know, very much in line what Helen said about it is you, you wouldn't do anything to the detriment of the well-being or the relationships being formed in the family. So if you've got positive relationships, that's the most important thing to maintain and um, it's not worth, um, you know, ensuring that you're giving feedback or that you are, um, you know, providing one-to-one -one support all of the time if it's going to, um, you know, have a negative impact on family relationships Saying that, you know, there are some families and some kids that absolutely are thriving at the moment and are loving that their parents are there playing that role of teacher and 
um, you know, where the parent does have the capacity to provide that one-to-one support. I know there are actually some parents that are feeling a little bit anxious that they're providing too much support and when that's withdrawn, um, that they're kind of building a rod for their kids back a little bit for when they have to go back to that, you know, one to 25 model in the classroom as opposed to the one-to-one model that they're currently um, enjoying. But, um, yeah, I don't think there's um, any right or wrong here. I think that, um, you know, there are so many family dynamics and there are so many um, different household situations that, um, you know, the level of support is the the amount that you can provide and that you can provide in a way that's going to be positive because as soon as we start providing support and um, the child or the student is starts, um, you know, feeling strained or anxious or frustrated by any feedback or help that they're given, then it's kind of futile anyway. So, Absolutely. yeah, I, I I think that there are, just like in the classroom, there are lots of levels of support that will be given, you know, during this time and that's totally okay. Absolutely. And we're seeing like quite a variety. I know, Helen, you've mentioned that, you know, some schools are applying a lot of pressure, but, you know, we've also encountered schools who are, you know, taking it one day at a time and being quite laid back about the different approaches that parents are taking, understanding that, you know, we've got this really diverse learning space at the moment and so unknown. Um, But of course, you know, the one exception are our adolescents, especially the ones going into year 12. And this really segues nicely into the next question I was going to ask Sophie, but I think Belinda on chat has um, um, made it even more precise. Um, And so we're going to turn now to adolescents and, you know, the stress that they're experiencing. So Sophie, I had a question for you, which is, you know, um, how do we support teenagers and their mental health and well-being? And, you know, what kind of interventions are available? I'm going to squash all these questions into one go. But of, of course, Belinda, um, who's just written on uh, our webinar chat, she's especially concerned with our year 12 students who are suffering quite a lot of stress at the moment. So, you know, if you could speak more broadly about teenagers and what we can do to support them and maybe a little bit more specifically about our year 12 students as well who are just under so much stress um, in this very critical year. Yeah, look, it is such a difficult situation for for different people in different ways and, and you can't help but feel for those year 12 students and what they must be going through right now. So, Belinda, thank you for your question. Um, I think I think in a circumstance like this, the real difficulty as as a teacher, or as a health professional, or as someone trying to support um, a teenager through the situation is you can't actually change the situation. Um, there's not there's not a whole lot of control we have over um, over the pandemic and and what's happening. I mean, we can control some behaviours to you know flatten the curve and that sort of thing, but. Um, but we have to we have to work within these restrictions that been, have been applied to us, and so um, I, I think given given that challenge of of not being able to do anything to change the situation, it really comes down to um, to normalising the distress and, and the the emotions that are being experienced by by teenagers and and by young people um, who are, who are um, experiencing these these losses and. 
um, you know, dashed hopes and and expectations that things are going to happen in a certain way that, and then they're not. Um, so I think very much saying it's normal to feel um, really unhappy about all of this happening. Um, and also um, engaging with, with young people, like being able to talk with them um, about how they're feeling. So they've got an an outlet um, where they can they can express um, that they're not feeling so great about the situation, particularly if they're feeling like they're not coping. Um, so you can support them to find um, more professional help through you know through your GP or through a psychologist or school counsellor or, or um, through whatever means um, is most appropriate for that young person. So I would say um, foremost it's about engaging with those young people and talking with them about how they're feeling and normalising that experience of, of distress um, and unhappiness. Um, I think another, another good tip or pointer is to facilitate social connectedness with these young people. So um, they can't physically meet up with people at the moment, um, although, you know, the restrictions are um, lessening a little. But um, I, I've been speaking with, with teenagers and they've actually been really, really good um, and really innovative in connecting with their friends online. Um, so I, I chatted with one young person who she and her friends meet up every Friday night on Zoom and they, they, um, they make up trivia questions and, and have a trivia night with each other. So um, I think for the, for the older teenagers, they're figuring those things out for themselves. So as, as a health professional or as a, as a parent or a teacher, just um, supporting and facilitating those processes. And, and with the younger teenagers is perhaps um, helping them instigate um, connecting with their peers online through, um, through, you know, WhatsApp chat groups, um, through Zoom, um, through things like that. Um, I think it was, um, it was Steph who said that, that, that younger children's sleep has been quite disrupted. Um, and I think that's a, another really important thing to, um, to highlight is that poor sleep is associated with, with so many disruptions in life. Um, so it's associated with um, poor mental health, poor eating habits, um, a whole range of a whole range of things. So helping a young person re-establish disrupted sleep routines um, and get a good night's sleep, um, in addition to just um, having having a good, um, a healthy daily routine. So making sure they're engaging in exercise, um, activities that are enjoyable for them and that give them a sense of accomplishment um, will also be something that that can help them out. And then lastly, um, sorry, I know I'm talking quite a bit now, Carol, but... Um, Take your time, it's good. <laughs> I think, um, you know, in, in, addition to, in addition to establishing um, that healthy lifestyle is, uh, like I was saying, um, well, actually, no, I didn't say before, but to, to highlight to them that this situation is transient. Um, it, it's not going to last forever. It will end. In fact, um, in Australia, where we're seeing um, some restrictions being lifted, where... Um, you know, two people can visit another people in their house as long as they maintain that 1.5 metres distance between them. So, um, so just reinforcing the fact that things will, things will return to somewhat normal um, and, and this is not, not here to stay. Absolutely. Now, um, your research looks at the development and effectiveness of digital interventions for young people. Are there any, you know, tell us a little bit about some of the advantages of that and also potentially, you know, anything you could recommend to the allied health practitioners um, and people listening in? Yep. Um, 
I guess you know one of the one of what we know about digital um, digital CBT interventions for young people is that they're effective in reducing um, reducing symptoms. So um, so so they they work, um, but they also address a number of barriers that prevent young people from seeking help um, in more traditional face to face um, interventions. So things like they're highly accessible; um, you can use them wherever and whenever. Um, they're also um, you can maintain anonymity a bit easier as well. Um, so teenagers are often concerned about stigma associated with um, seeking help for mental health issues. So um, the advantage of a digital intervention is you can you can use it very privately. Um, they're also usually pretty cost effective. So um, they don't cost very much money. So that barrier is reduced as well. Um, I think... Uh, you know, there's lots and lots of different um, different types of programs and apps and things like that. Um, it one one thing that we're um, that we try and establish at Black Dog Institute is to teach people how to evaluate um, whether a program or an app is is good. Um, for example, it, whether it it does what it says it's going to do, whether it's been evaluated, um, whether or not um, it has been developed by reliable sources. Um, so there, there is a list on the Black Dog website that, that um, tells you how to go about, about doing that. Um, but it is important to know how to evaluate because there, so, there, are, there are thousands and thousands of apps. If you go to um, the app stores, there's, there's many, many, many um, different apps that, that, are, that are well-being wellness apps. Um, but um, some good ones that, that, um, that we promote at Black Dog are things like um, Smiling Mind, um, this Way Up program, um, Mood Gym. Uh, the, the, the list, there's a list on Black Dog of ones that we that we recommend um, because they're from credible sources and they've been evaluated and shown to be effective and, and do what they say that they're going to do. Um, so I'd recommend jumping on the Black Dog website and, and having a look there. Another great place to go to look, um, look at um, the types of digital resources that are available is the government um, Head to Health website um, so it's got um, it's got a lot of apps that are appropriate for young people to use that are from reliable sources so um, like MindSpot is another one um, yeah so places like that yeah and I think they've got like over 300 digital resources on there that's all been vetted by them um, in terms of you know recommendations so it's a nice place to kind of visit um, for evidence-based or it's starting to develop evidence-based um, kind of interventions that's digitally in the digital context. Now I want to turn back to Helen now. Helen I'm going to hit you with a double whammy here. Um, <laughs> let's go let's go to your research because there's another question I don't know if you can open up your Q&A panel that I think you could also address as well um, from Apex New South Wales but let's uh, go to the area that you've been researching. So are there any potential silver linings to lockdown for children and young people? Because you mentioned play. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Um, this is going to be quite anecdotal. Um, but lots of children right now are having more unstructured time and more play time than they normally have. Um, and we know that there's lots of good things about play. Um, children learn a lot when they play 
Um, so just because they're playing doesn't mean that they're not learning. Um, and they also learn about emotions. They learn about um, regulating themselves. It's a good way of helping them to um, understand what's going on in the world around them. Um, I've noticed with my own children, for example, um, my, well, I've got two, seven and four, they are. Um, and they've really worked out how to play with one another and be considerate for the other one's ability and age. And just having that more time playing, they've really developed. And so I think for a lot of children who normally have quite highly structured lives, you know, they go to school, then they might do after school activities um, most days, or they go to here, to there and everywhere and have very little unstructured time. This time might actually be quite beneficial for them to have a bit more time to play and just to take things a bit slower. Um, and I've certainly noticed, at least in the UK, and I imagine it would be the same there, that families generally are doing things more slowly and more together. You know, so going for walks together, going for bike rides together. Um, because of the nature of lockdown, people are not allowed, you know, here at least we're not allowed to go very far from our homes. Um, so really appreciating the space around you and um, lots of people saying things like oh I had no idea that there were woods up the end of the road or that there was that really nice park over there or you know just people exploring their local neighborhoods spending more time together and maybe just taking that step back a little bit from the busyness of our day-to-day -day lives and starting to appreciate some of those more simple things um, about being together about where we live about just play things that don't require us to spend any money or go anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, I let my children play for an entire day unstructured. I just gave them some bed sheets and some sticks and I wouldn't let them come back in because it was a beautiful day. And they had played, I think, for six hours straight, this imaginary Fantastic. game. Um, well done. <laughs> doctors, right? And it was really lovely because I didn't have to be involved in that entire <clears throat> process too much. I just brought them food. Now, we know that play has a lot of benefits. You know, it develops, um, you know, in terms of sociodramatic play, for example, it helps children understand each other, resolve conflict. It's good for cognitive development. Are there any benefits to mental health based on your recent research in this area? Does play contribute to mental yeah. health? Yeah, definitely. And um, so there's, you know, there's quite general evidence that play is good for children's mental health. At the most extreme end, when children don't have play, we see dramatic mental health problems. Children need play to some extent. Um, but we also see when children are in um, stressful circumstances, so, for example, children who might be in hospital um, because they've got a serious illness. When we do play-based interventions with those children, and particularly just giving them space and time to play in a free way, as you just described, where they're leading the play and they're working out what they want to do and there's very little adult intervention, that their stress levels decrease hugely. Um, so we do, yeah, we, we know that play is beneficial for mental health. I think to some extent, um, play can be dismissed, um, partly because the um, scientific evidence hasn't always been the most robust. If we compare that to doing kind of the clinical trials approach, um, play often isn't researched in that way. A lot of play research is qualitative. So that's some of the work that I'm trying to do at the moment is kind of bring that more kind of clinical methodology to play research to try and get that evidence base um, built up a little bit more. 
Mm. And, you know, in Australia, there's been a lot of talk about risky play um, because, you know, a lot of the early childhood educators are trying to promote it because we know that that develops a lot of motor skills. Like they've really focused on the fine motor skills, you know, the climbing, uh, you know, even sometimes yeah. like, you know, you've seen in some of the models overseas, especially the Nordic countries, they're starting mm. to even like safely teach children to play with a little bit of fire as well. Now, risky yeah. play, are there any benefits there um, in, in terms of your research? Yeah, so this is my this is my baby, really, risky play. It's um, So as somebody who's interested in, in anxiety, some of the things that we know are risk factors for anxiety are things like not being exposed to situations that make you feel anxious. Um, not being able to cope with uncertainty, um, low self-efficacy, so feeling like you're not going to be able to cope when you're in these situations, misinterpretation of physiological arousal, like my heart's racing, my hands are sweating. Um, so, and I don't know what that means, but it means I'm going to die, I'm going to have a heart attack and misinterpreting that. And I think that exposing children to risky play will allow us to target some of those things. So when a child plays in a sort of adventurous way, um, you know, then their heart might be racing a little bit, but they're doing it in a fun, playful way. Okay, so they then learn that, oh, my, my heart races, actually, it's okay. Um, and they learn that they can challenge themselves and that they can cope and they expose themselves to uncertainty and they're exposing themselves to these situations that are mildly fear-provoking. Um, but when that's done in a way where that's very child-led, they will naturally expose themselves to a little bit of risk, but not so much that it you know, that they're actually at risk, if that makes sense. If adults intervene too much, then it can go a bit wrong because, you know, if you imagine an adult saying, no, climb higher, climb higher, get up that tree, you've got to go higher. And then, you know, the child is way out of their comfort zone, doesn't feel in control whatsoever. So, you know, we need to be careful about how we do it. But children, there's evidence that children will naturally expose themselves to the level of risk that suits them. And I think as parents, um, we can support that. And by giving them the space, trusting them, they're going to be okay. They know what they're doing. You know, always keeping an eye. You know, we don't want any children to be getting hurt. So, you, you know, you're keeping an eye on them, but giving them the space and trusting them a little bit to just explore and work things out for themselves rather, rather than always jumping in, kind of trying to, to solve it for them, tell them it's too risky, down you get. Um, and right now, that's, it's really a, an issue because children can't play in a risky play, like in a risky way like they usually do. Um, because the places that they can go to play are limited. Um, and also lots of the time they do this with other children and that helps them to be brave. So, oh, should we do this? Let's try it. And they support each other and help one another out, which they can't do at the moment. Um, so I, I'm a little bit concerned that right now children are not playing outdoors maybe as much as they should be doing, ideally for their mental health. And also they're missing out on some of these learning experiences that they would get through that type of adventurous or risky play. Absolutely. You know, I think it's a little bit different at the moment in Australia, because even though our playgrounds are closed down, I'm seeing a lot more children doing bushwalking and getting out and playing with rocks and sticks as well. So you know, it's a little bit of that right. balance, you know, the yeah. uh, some parents are really keeping their children at home, but actually, you know, you might be seeing more families going out for bushwalks and doing a lot more risky play with siblings. Now, I have an interesting question here. Um, from Melanie where you know do you have any ideas for the only child because they are you know might be geographically isolated um what can they do to support play in that context yeah it's really tough on only children isn't it um so I think 
you know, the, the different types of play. And one of the things that I've been thinking about in relation to the pandemic is that lots of children are getting more play than they usually get because they're not going to school. Um, but all children have a deficit in play because they're not able to play with their peers. Um, so we've got this situation where it appears that children are playing a lot more, but actually they're missing out on a really crucial aspect of their play. And children who have siblings can make up for that to some extent because they can play with one another, but it's not the same as peer play. It's quite different, you know, because of the age difference and also because of the expectation of your family roles, which is very different to playing with a peer and the negotiation that happens when you play with peers. So for children who are only children, they can do the play part just as well as any other child can do the play part. But it's the social play, that, um, that modelling of more peer play that's obviously missing. So I think, you know, what I was saying about, you know, promoting free play, allowing children to play at home, that applies to all children, you know. But with in terms of the social play, you know, at the moment, unfortunately, the only people to do the social play with only children are their parents. Um, it depends on the age of the child. So relating back to some of the stuff that Sophie was saying before, if there is a way that they're able to play like online, interacting with friends, um, then fantastic, do that. Um, I know that that varies hugely by age. My um, seven-year-old has been playing very simple games and doing video calls and just, you know, when you put the filters on and just make your faces look funny. And that's basically their level of interaction, but they'll do it for an hour. They don't really talk about anything. They just laugh at each other and change their things around. Um, but actually, but he loves it and it really brings him a lot of joy. And you can see that he is getting some of that social interaction from that, even though he's not really old enough to say, so how was your day? And what have you been doing? And what do you think about this? Yeah. And um, so just trying to find kind of simple ways that they might be able to interact online. But then I know my four-year-old is not up for that at all. He finds it really upsetting seeing his friends online. So I totally get that it varies by age and, and that it's really difficult for, yeah, for only children. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm assuming that parents playing with children is also really beneficial because, you know, all that attachment-rich processes is happening. But also fathers uh, can play, like that rough play can also be a kind of risky play as well that can promote, you know, better well-being. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, yeah, as much as it's possible to do so, parents finding time to play with their children. And, you know, but I understand how much pressure is on parents. So, you know, you've got to do your job and you've got to homeschool. And if you could also find some time for quality play with your child, that would be great. Um, so what we tend to advise if parents are feeling like, how can I ever fit in playing with them as well is for most of the day to allow them to play quite freely. So as you said, Carol, you know, give them some sheets and sticks some pillows, you know, some stuffed animals, whatever, depending on their age, and send them off, find something to do with these. My children are spending a lot of time using chalk outside and making up games together. Um, and then try and find special time each day. So maybe it's only 20 minutes where you sit down as a parent and you turn off the laptop and you turn off Zoom and you focus on play, special play time with the child. And the recommendation is if you do that for 20 minutes a day, then that can really help that um, bond with the parent-child relationship. So. 20 minutes sounds like it's achievable although yes we've got quite high benchmarks at the moment yeah tough period. <laughs> yeah but I think but, reassuring parents they don't they're not expected to play with their child all day you know but if they can just give them that bit of time that's helpful absolutely now turning back to Steph here you know we've talked a little bit about play and you know we've got a question that's also relevant to the next um, question here you know yes 
the importance of free play, but are there any techniques? Because I know that a lot of parents are struggling to get their children to engage in that schoolwork and to be able to concentrate. And also, you know, um, we've got a question here as well from Lisa where, you know, what do we do with the children who have difficulty concentrating and managing their workload? Do you have any tips as an educator um, in terms of helping students focus on, on their schoolwork during the day when there's space to do that? Um, yeah, like I agree the importance of play is so great, but I know that also um, parents, they want their kids to be able to achieve some of the tasks that are being set for them um, from their teachers. And um, I suppose one thing to kind of keep them motivated and keep them engaged and it sounds so simple, but it's actually telling them how wonderful they are, identifying um, the things that they have achieved. So, you know, it, it depends on the child, it depends on the student, and it depends on um, what your expectations are. But, you know, if, it, if it's just like kind of a functional goal, it might be, oh, wow, you got all your equipment ready today. Or it might be, um, oh, my gosh, that piece of writing is amazing. That's the best, um, you know, piece of writing that you've done since you've, you know, been doing this remote learning gig. Um, so I think positive feedback before constructive feedback is really um, essential almost to um, kind of ensure that they that kids remain engaged. Um, Brain breaks is another thing. Um, little little breaks for the kids to just make sure that they there's not the expectation that they just keep on going and keep on going even though their brains are feeling fried. <laughs> um, ensuring that they're fed because sometimes kids, they don't realise that they're actually hungry and, um, you know, it's kind of like those really basic fundamental things that as adults we sometimes forget and you know we kind of um work through it but I know with kids at school and even with my own kids um if my son's hungry he's not doing anything like and he doesn't he doesn't actually identify that as being hungry he's still learning about that feeling and what that actually means but if I feed him then um you know, there, there's kind of production at the other end sometimes, not all the time. <laughs> um, what good. other things? Um, I suppose prioritising. So and um, collaborating with the child about priorities for their work. So, you know, if there is work set at the beginning of the day. I know some schools are setting work each day, some schools are setting work weekly, but um, when it suits kind of that schedule to prioritise and ask the child, what's the most important thing to kind of get done today? And do you think you're going to need help with that? And um, it, it shows them that you value what they're doing and that you. Um, value the time that they're spending on it and it kind of gives them ownership of their own learning a little bit and that is motivating and it's incredible when kids say things out loud um, 
they're more inclined to give it a go. So if they've said to you in the morning, yes, this is a really important task, they're actually going to be more inclined to give it a go than if they haven't said it out loud. And so, um, yeah, I suppose there there are a few um, little things there. I also think scheduling is or routines are really valuable as well. Yeah. So, so that kids know parents' routines and parents um, know kids' routines and that it's organised as a family at the moment, not just kind of... Um, you know, siloed to different people in the household that the whole family goes, oh, this is our schedule and, you know, we're going to allocate time to everybody. This is quiet time or this is um, exercise time and those kind of things, um, yeah, they, they can help. Not all the time, not all the time. It's not like a, a magic wand but, um you know, sometimes. Yeah. Absolutely. And those are really great tips. You know, even when we're talking about routine, I think a lot of parents have really been focused on, you know, getting that schoolwork done and um, having the meals at the right time. But, you know, it doesn't mean that we, we can't also schedule in free play as well, right? There's that flexibility around that. And it's a little reminder to parents and the people working from home that you can also schedule in the fun stuff and not to forget like the basic tool that we have as parents, which is this praise um, that can really motivate a child who's not concentrating um, and, and letting them lead a little bit and giving them a little bit of autonomy in terms of choosing that task. Um, so we've talked about some vital things and none of them have been about like, you've got to learn long division. It's really about sleep, free play, um, making sure they're fed, um, making sure that they're, you know, mentally well. And I think, you know, one that's really vitally important to teens so is this peer relationships right you've mentioned it earlier and we forget that that's actually you know food for teenagers they really need it and they're losing it during COVID-19 um do you have any tips for how teenagers can you know connect socially at this time when we're really distant yeah I mean I think I touched on it a little bit um before I and, and uh, as I also said um Teenagers are actually uh, the ones that I'm talking to. They're doing a really good job of, of um, working out how to connect with their peers um, socially, uh, virtually um, through online methods. And they're probably much more innovative with it than I could ever be. So um, uh, my tip would be um, if you're concerned about a teenager who is, is, is quite isolated um, have a chat with them, talk with them or problem solve with them around how they could potentially connect with their friends um, online. Um, even, even an old-fashioned phone call um, can be something that um, is really rewarding. And um, as, as Helen was saying, um, you know, with her, her child just um, playing with a friend where it's not, it's not even kind of a verbal conversation, um, what we're finding is that um, teenagers are spending more time um, engaging in multiplayer games, for example. Um, and just anecdotally with my own children, um, so I've got a, a six and an eight-year-old, they, um, they play games with their friends, but they FaceTime each other. So they don't talk to each other, but they hear each other say, wow, and, and you know, just, just hearing each other um, 
making those sort of verbal responses seems to be um, really enjoyable for them. So it's it's the same with teenagers. Um, connecting with their with their friends and their peers in whatever way they can, um, doing whatever they can um, while adhering to these kind of um, physical distancing um, restrictions. And I actually I saw that there was a question about um, from from Danica about. Um, Parents being concerned about their teenagers staying in their rooms all day, being on their computers more often, um, drops in personal hygiene and that sort of thing. Um, just, Danica, in response to that question, um, one thing I want to say is that um, just from a biological perspective, teenagers actually have different sleep cycles to adults. So they um, their circadian rhythms are delayed. So if your teenager is going to bed late and waking up later in the day, that's actually really, really normal. Um, and it's just that um, society is structured by adults, um, which is um, why teenagers have to go to school at a certain time and, and you know, work scheduled to start at a certain time. Um, if, if the world was structured by teenagers, work would start at 11 um, and, and then much later in the day. Um, so, so going to bed late and, wait, and, and staying in bed later into the morning is probably actually them just adhering to their natural sleep rhythms. Um, so that's not necessarily something to be concerned about. Um, the other thing about being on their computers more, I think it's a product of these times. Um, school is happening online. Um, connecting with friends is happening online. All these things are happening um, with them using their devices. So my advice to my advice to parents and and health workers um, uh, and teachers is probably just during this during this pandemic is to be a little flexible um, around device use. Um, I think. Uh, I, I think it might be a challenge putting restrictions back in place once this is all over. <laughs> but but for now, um, it, it's so important that they're that they're engaging with their friends, and if it means a bit more screen time, then I think that that's that's just what has to happen um, right now. And uh, in terms of the personal hygiene, showering, and that sort of thing, I think just getting them back into a routine, and especially now that things are. Uh, starting to restrictions are, are lessening. I think starting to talk about establishing a routine that reflects what their day used to look like is it's it's probably good to get that ball rolling now, so it's not a huge shock to the system once school does go back and and all that sort of thing. Thank you so much for that, Sophie. Look, it looks like we are running out of time. So some additional resources, uh, just keep in mind, we've got podcasts and webinar, webinars at the Black Dog Institute that are coming up. And hopefully you can um, look in on uh, those uh, webinars and podcasts. And uh, we also have a lot of e-mental health tools and resources at the moment. Um, so do check us out um, in e-mental health. Again, Mel will send out the links to that. Please do follow us on the Black Dog Institute um, and on social media. So we're on Facebook and Twitter um, and also LinkedIn as well. Now, we're not sure when the next Expert Insight session will be and whether it's going to be live or online, but I just wanted to say a really big thank you to our amazing expert panels uh, tonight who gave up their time, uh, their afternoon, and for Helen, their morning to have a chat to us. Um, so thank you, everyone, for attending, and we will see you soon. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, Subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.